G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about public policy. And today we get to ask, can literature influence public policy? Tropic of Despair, Bitter Paradise, Island of Sorrow were the headlines I'd been reading. Three months earlier, on the 19th of November 2004, an Aboriginal man called Cameron Dumaji had been arrested for swearing at a white police officer. Forty minutes later, he was dead on a cell floor with injuries like those of someone who'd been in a car or plane crash. The police said the man had tripped on a step and the state-appointed pathologist reported no signs of brutality. The community did not agree. A week later, a mob burnt down the island's police station and the arresting officer's house. The officer, Senior Sergeant Chris Hurley, went into hiding on the mainland. Those were the absorbing words of Chloe Hooper from her book, The Tall Man, which is required reading in Australian secondary schools. And Chloe Hooper is one of our guests today. Chloe, welcome to The Policy Shop. Thanks for having me. Also here is influential writer and former editor of the literary magazine Mianjin, Sophie Cunningham, welcome. Thank you. Associate Professor Tim Lynch founded the Great Books Masterclass series here at the University of Melbourne and is director of the Graduate School of Humanities and the Social Sciences. He completes our panel of guests to examine how literature might influence public policy. Welcome also, Tim. Hello. So let's start with a tough assessment. Has literature failed? In his address to the Melbourne Writers' Festival, author Richard Flanagan said, and I quote, we need to use words to once more see each other for what we are, fellow human beings, no more, no less, end quote. His lecture, picked up by the New York Times, amongst others, drew attention to Australian government policy on refugees and asylum seekers. Sophie, has literature failed to elicit empathy? I don't know that literature's failed, but something, there is a failure, there's, there's no doubt about that. I have been distressed by the fact that despite the, the number of really powerful texts on the refugee crisis and indeed many um, sort of moral, great moral issues that we're becoming a less empathetic society. And I certainly do think that there is less interest in engaging in, in the government engaging with literature as an important art form. It was something that used to be very supported by governments um, of any colour, and that, that no longer seems to be the case. You've said, and I quote, the authors of significant novels become our conscience, public intellectuals, if you like. I think that the books themselves may not always be read and therefore heard, but the authors, I think, sort of get a kind of confidence from, from the reception of the book and from the writing of the book that does allow them to kind of speak publicly on these issues. And writers' festivals also provide a, a platform for writers to, to talk about these issues. And so more and more, I feel that they have kind of moved into this public space of, of commenting on, on these issues of our times, even if they're not always the issues they've, they've um, been addressing in their novels, but they're sort of received... Um, and welcomed, I think, as, as more public intellectuals. So, Chloe, can literature influence politics? I think the answer is yes. Literature can influence politics. I'm not sure that today uh, we're having quite the uh, rich feedback between politicians and, and writers that in the past uh, was experienced. 
I, I think uh, Dickens surely writing about poverty and, and pretension in in uh, Victorian England, uh, he, he must have had some influence, although he was n- obviously not a polemicist on, on public policy. So when you write, are you writing with an eye to the public debate? I suppose I'm very interested in, in what is being publicly debated and what the issues uh, that strike me as important of our day are. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing uh, with that particularly in mind. I, I'm more interested in, in, in a way, taking a current affairs story and actually taking it into the realm of story and uh, divorcing some of those sort of more pamphleteering elements from, from a work. Tim, in his eulogy for Yeats, W.H. Auden said, I quote, poetry changes nothing. Hmm. Was he right? Yes. Um, Would you like to expand on that? uh, I think poetry can frame a particular reaction to a a human situation. Can it produce it? Possibly can it catalyze it? Perhaps that's... uh, that's possible. I'm sceptical of writers who have a political purpose, especially in the current moment, because they tend to produce the most unreadable, turgid kind of books. Um, political meanings is often um, implicit, not incidental or tangential, but implicit in, in texts. And yet you brought a copy of 1984 with well, you to the I, studio. I, 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 but this is, this is my... This, you, you're going to go straight to the heart of my conservatism now, that I, I don't think we are capable in the current moment of producing great writing. And I think there are lots of explanations as as to why that might be the case. I think one of them is that, especially given the land we're currently situated in, there's no great crisis to compel great art uh, and no great literature. We've had 25 years of economic growth, which is why in the scheme of things, relatively small issues, I mean, I'm speaking relatively here, tend to obsess Australian political culture. Uh, perhaps it's something we might return to, but uh, it, and it's an old argument, and it's capable of being one depending on which era you 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 stop. But I think you need great crisis and downturn and war to produce great great literature. Sophie. Chloe might be about to leap in and also comment on this, but I certainly actually, I think we do have great crisis. Uh, the, the treatment of the Australia's Indigenous people is actually a major crisis, even if we're a prosperous country. And I would also describe um, Australia's treatment of refugees as a kind of ethical crisis for, for the country. But the particular comment I wanted to make is that I think that poetry can change things. I'm thinking actually of um, the reading of Howl in San Francisco in the 50s um, by Ginsburg in a cafe, which was meant to be a fairly, not not a great reading actually, but it sort of captured a, a moment and also propelled a movement that, that sort of lasted some decades. And I do think it changed the culture. You can have arguments about whether it was for better or worse, but it certainly had a profound influence. Chloe, poetry changes nothing? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You see Obama sort of coming down the, the steps of Air Force One, you know, holding on to volumes of poetry. So I'm not sure. I mean, can, can it? I, I, I'm not sure that it changes nothing. I, I'm not going to make an argument for sort of poetry today and in Australia right now having a grand effect or the sort of effect we would like to see on social policy. But I, I also sort of strongly disagree that we're we're not living in a, in a time of crisis. I, I would sort of, you know, also in, include 
you know, invite the environmental crisis that's sort of taking place here. It, what it hasn't done, of course, I mean, I, uh, and we can argue about the, the nature of, uh, of the crises we are facing. The argument is it's not producing a comparable reaction in terms of art and literature. That's the argument. It, produ- it produces, well, in my, I mean, this is, and this is anecdotal and experiential, of course, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't produce, if you looked at a Dickens or a Shakespeare or an Orwell, they're both the products, I think, of their environment, which were times of great human misery and stress. Um, now, if we are in comparable, at a comparable moment, and I would beg to differ on that, I'd, st- I'd still need to see evidence of that manifested in in creativity. And I don't think we see that. And it could be the argument, well, wait a while, Lynch, and eventually you'll get great art. I don't see where the great art is coming from. I, I think part of the issue is people, is there is a, a lack of momentum around really extraordinary novels being written in Australia today. And there's a lack of awareness of really good Australian novels. When you we talk about climate change, for example, I thought James Bradley's Clade was a beautiful novella, probably, or, or a short novel about climate change. I do, But I do think that it's becoming harder for novels to get traction with sort of large swathes of the public. Well, let's just pursue this a little bit. Uh, as opposed to literature speaking to specific day-to-day politics, it's about literature's ability to shape new intellectual climates, new ways of seeing. Uh, people have always credited Virginia Woolf and Germaine Greer, amongst many others, in inspiring a new debate about women's rights and women's place in society. Is this a realistic assessment or are we overstating the influence of literature? Well, with, with Virginia Woolf, I think what's interesting is that it was her polemics that I do, I do her, um, her speech, A Room of One's Own, that, that was then published, was very polemical and very explicitly political and not as beautifully written as some of her more modernist works, yet it did change things quite quickly, I think, and you could argue that her, her novels didn't necessarily have as a dramatic and, and as quick an effect and was sort of slower to sort of um, impact on the culture. So I sometimes do think that um, pieces of polemicism or the act of polemicism, which writers often engage in, can change things. So we just touched on the question of climate change as an interesting area. And Chloe, we can point to hugely influential non-fiction works on climate, such as, of course, The Silent Spring. But I'm wondering whether we can see a meaningful connection between literature and public awareness. I would argue that it's not, uh, you know, literature not, isn't necessarily to blame here. Uh, you know, that's notwithstanding Tim's criticism that I don't entirely agree with about the quality of what is being being written or, or produced in, in by artists or, or, for argument's sake, poets today. Uh, I, I think that patterns of readership have have completely changed over the last kind of even really 10 or 20 years. The way that we're consuming these works is very different. And I also am not convinced that politicians are actually, you know, those who who make our policy are reading in, in quite the same way. So can literature ever again mobilise social change? I would hope so. I'm less certain. I mean, I would hope so too, but I, I'm not sure. I do think that the world has changed a lot. <laughs> that seems like an understatement. And to expect an, a novels to have the same traction they did 100, 100 years ago, what we currently call novels, I think is unrealistic. Mm. I was in a, on a panel recently about Henry Handel Richardson and 
a lot of people in the audience were saying how terrible it was that people weren't studying and reading The Fortunes of Richard Marnie, which is indeed a great trilogy. But it is about 1,200 words, um, pages long. And I understand why it's very difficult for students to be expected to read that on top of 15 other texts when they're doing a course. For example, I do think that the pressures on people, young adult and adults, are, are so are, are very different these days and it's much harder to find the time to involve yourself with literature in the same right. way. Tim, you have a very strong interest in American democracy, an idea nurtured, of course, by great speeches and pamphlets. And as a student, you performed extracts of de Tocqueville's Democracy in America on university campuses across them, North America. Why this faith in the power of words to promote democracy? Well, that's an excellent illustration, I think, which is now going to may well confound what I started the uh, podcast uh, maintaining that clearly, the, if the literature is, is of such magnificence and clarity, it's more likely to have an impact uh, and a lasting impact than in it, than if those characteristics don't obtain. Um, I think peculiarly, without going down a particularly uh, American track. One of the great claims that American democracy or American constitutionalism has, because the word democracy doesn't feature it in the, in the founding texts, is that the founding texts are superb works of literature where they engaged with style committees to create the clarity. Now, if uh, this may be a crude analogy, but if one, one were to take a more contemporary manifestation of political power and of union, the European Union, it seems to me especially devoid, deliberately so, of great art and literature because it's supposed to be ruled by technocrats and bureaucrats. So there's no role for great art and literature. Um, in in the English example, and we are, of course, ob obliged to deal with uh, English literature, although not to the exclusion of others, there is peculiarly a notion of nationhood rooted within it, which finds fine expression in, in Shakespeare and Dickens. There isn't a transnational literature, let me argue. Um, and of course, modern contemporary liberalism, um, left-wing liberalism, eschews nationhood, but then must find the clarity, uh, must find the strength of identity in some other form. And I think the argument, and, and it's possible to have it and to, to, to argue against it, is that, we, 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 that that's what the left-wing side of the political spectrum lacks. It wants to do things, but it doesn't have the creative urge. Uh, it doesn't have the creative basis on which to compel change. Can I ask you what you mean by creative basis to compel change? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think... I mean, this is, these are difficult questions because they're, they're, they're anecdotal and my sense of literature today is different from someone else's. But I, I think great political projects need texts. Um, I, Marxism needed a text. I mean, it, it, it capitalises on a mood... Um, but it fundamentally, and this is written down, written down with, with superb clarity, it can't animate. And what we lack now on all the issues that you, I think it, you're perfectly right to, to think are, are, are crucial, what we lack is a text. Um, certainly we lack great art. What we have is a series of technocratic responses. I mean, my particular approach here, unfortunately, is framed by having a 13-year-old son who's been exposed to English and... The, the limited scope for actually engaging with old literature read at length. Instead, he's, he reads what could be characterised as sort of trendy books about these issues, which are crucial issues, but they're presented in such turgid 
He's talking about my book. <laughs> no, no, actually. No, I. We're going to talk about your book. And, and this, this, this will sound out like sycophancy, with the possible exception of your own work. Sure. Chloe, which I, which I, which which he's not had the pleasure of reading, which I'll now put on his list. But the, of course, this is anecdotal, and this is, this is me as a dad reacting to what Australian education presents to our children. And well, I, I think it's deficient. I think my question partly would be though what is a straight what books get onto lists and I've been in, I was I'm not going to go on about this but I was involved in setting up a prize called the Stella Prize and part of the motivation for that was the fact that so few novels written by women were getting on year 12 lists year 11 lists even university lists and that sense that um, what filters through the various kind of systems to kind of get on lists, I, th I think is, is it's very unclear what, what means a book is going to get onto a list or not. Mm. And has the Stella Prize changed Australian reading patterns? It's certainly... Wide, widely credited with doing so. It's certainly made a big difference. The sales for the winners have been... They, they get a lot more sales. But in fact, one of the things that I'm most excited by is that the long list, we get lots of calls from libraries and organisations and the long lists are getting bought. And we also, I think there's been a lot of lobbying about um, getting more books by Australian women onto, onto educational lists. And I think that's meeting some success, but I'm actually less certain of the figures around that. But yes, we're having an impact. So let's turn to a book that has been widely set in curriculum and much discussed. And that, of course, is The Tall Man. Uh, by Chloe Hooper, which tells the story of a young Indigenous man on Palm Island, Cameron Dumaji, who swore at a policeman and 40 minutes later lay dead in a watchhouse cell. It's now included on the national syllabus, and that means there's a young generation that has engaged with this book and discussed it. Chloe, what's been your experience as an author with having a book set on, on a syllabus, and does it make a difference? To what? To Lynn? people's interest in the topic and interest in Indigenous rights and interest in justice? I think it does make a difference. Um, I'm not sure that it makes a difference to the sort of on a policy level. I mean, unfortunately, in the 25 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody tabled its recommendations, there have been a further 400 deaths and, I, you know, you know the statistics, um, 85% of the prison population in the Northern Territory is Indigenous. Um, I think that I, I'm going to sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps speaking up more for this book, you know, partly in response, Tim, to some of your... Sure, well, <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really not, I'm not actually, let's not sort of, I'm going to pretend that I'm not the author of the book because I don't want to sort of take, you know, it's not a kind of personal thing. Yeah. It's really... You know, one thing, to, I guess, to sort of speak up for literature is to say that when I grew up, I knew absolutely nothing about uh, Indigenous Australia and we learnt nothing about it in school. And so what what can a book like this potentially do on, on a syllabus? And I would hope that it can do some of the things that, that writing, you know, is, is meant to do, which is to to give a lesson of, of, of empathy, to um, take people to places that they haven't travelled before to meet people that they wouldn't usually meet, um, to give a, a sense of the moral complexities of of Australian history and of life in general. And so I think that on that level, even if you know it never has any wider political implications, I think that's important. Of course, one would hope for other things, but I didn't write it for that reason. Sorry, I was just I was going to observe that clearly a 
fundamental part of Australian political discourse is now uh, about indigenous rights and indigenous experience. And it could be because that has been articulated in something other than simply political platforms. And it, it could be, and my suspicion is, and I'll make a point of reading it, that the tall man advances that that cause. So perhaps your book actually answers the question we're, we're, we're engaged Well, with. I'm not sure. I mean, it, you, you mentioned Marx, and I'm sh- I, I would say that 30 years ago, the sort of Marxist critique of this book would be that it's an abject failure because although it sets out a... Um, it, I, I, you know, it witnesses this this story of kind of racial horror, it doesn't actually then take it to another level and and give any uh, prescriptions on how things should be changed. And so I would say that, um, you know, in, in 2008 when this was published, those kinds of certainties are, are no longer as clear or possible. Sophie, you talked about uh, the Stella Prize giving novelists a platform from which to speak. How does the skillful author use that platform? It wasn't something we thought about when we set up the prize, but there is a real pressure on the women who have won the prize to then become spokesperson for this, um, the idea that it's important to have women's writing recognised and that it has been excluded from that recognition in the past. And that's a bit of an unfair pressure on an author because that may not actually be their position, that the book is put in by their publisher. They can say, please don't put it in, but they don't tend to. That said, we have been really amazed by um, Claire Wright, Charlotte Wood have been extraordinary. Um, In fact, all all the prize winners have been extraordinary as spokeswomen for issues around gender equality. Charlotte's talked specifically around issues of, of domestic violence and Claire Wright about recovering women's history. And that's not something we explicitly asked of of the women who who won the prize, but they have. I think that's something they've actually seen as part of their way of saying thank you for the money, probably, <laughs> or thank thank you for the recognition has been to kind of take that on. And I think they have enjoyed enjoyed that kind of opportunity. So even if it's stressful for writers to sort of move into the public realm, because not all writers are natural. Um, Naturals, as, as, as maybe we're, we're becoming aware of today, because I think writers always find it hard to kind of talk about these things. But they also do feel very passionately about issues, and, and, the, and the chance to talk about them is, is a welcome one. So let's talk for a minute about diversity in literature. In her keynote address at the opening of the Melbourne Writers' Festival, Maxine Beniba Clark, the author of The Hate Race, stated that Australian children who were not white or middle class were all but invisible in children's books. Chloe, have we created a sort of monoculture or a monocolour lens in which to view our society and therefore, through fiction, an inaccurate view of human experience? Well, I suppose, you know, throughout history, writers have tended to be, uh, have come from privileged classes and, you know, there's, I guess there is sort of every argument that there can be a monocultural element to, to Australian literature and I think Maxine probably has a point. So, Tim, is there political diversity in fiction and would it matter? It's a super question. Um, I think, and I don't want to fall back on my my experience as a, as a dad, um, but I, I would suggest that most of the work that my son has consumed have been about the central 
issues, these great moral issues from climate change and Nauru to women's rights to the plight of the indigenous. So I'm not sure. And it, you might, we might claim this is this came far too late, but it's certainly happening now. My my query would be: Is it is it good enough? Uh, uh, is it a fine enough expression of some of the, the moral imperatives that it that it contends to deal with? And my suspicion is it's it just not yet. Now, we can have a long argument, of course, that most of the great literature is written by dead white fellas. Um, now, the fact that it is, I don't think makes the literature any less relevant. I, mean, I think a Dickens or a Shakespeare, though these might, might be hackneyed um, in terms of the citation, I, I think they transcend gender. Um, the, uh, and I, let me suppose for a moment that in the future, the true test of, of a writer's craft won't be his or her gender or orientation or politics even, but will be whether the literature stands up as good literature. And I don't think we're in that moment yet. It seems to me hard to imagine a female writer not being considered a female, a, a woman writer. Um, and it could be that, that any number of women writers, indigenous writers, would rather defy the label and write tangentially. Um, but I don't think we're in that moment yet. Sophie? Actually, uh, um, on, on your last point, I don't. It, it's not that women who win the prize have to be writing about women. That was actually explicitly one of the rules around the prize because with... Um, other prizes for women, they've had. There's been a condition that they represent women in the best right, or they write about women's history. The winner of the Stella Prize could have a male lead character, and you know, in no way be engaging with, with women's politics. But I actually wanted to. Try, I'm trying to get a grip on what you're saying. In that, I thought you were moving from the kind of reading your 13 year old son was doing to a broader statement about literature. And I do think that young adult writing and and the kind of writing that is on syllabus is more issue based because mm. that's sort of seen as part of their education. So I'm not sure that it's totally fair to extrapolate from that to kind of broader statements about, no, that, about, that, about that literature. That might be fair. So it, do we get a reasonably overview of our own community through the totality of Australian literature? Oh, I think we probably don't. But, but there are some books around which don't, as, as I said before, maybe aren't being widely enough read. I mean, Carpentaria by Alexis Wright is, I think, a great Australian novel. Uh, it, I don't actually know what the sales figures on that are, but I'm not sure that it's read as widely as, as it should be. Um, so I think my concern is that um, regardless of who is writing books and what they're being written about is that they're not necessarily finding their audiences. So what are the great gaps in our national literature? I, w I mean, I would agree with Maxine that there is not uh, enough representation of um, of coloured people and of working, specifically coloured and working class people. So Tim Winton has done an amazing job, for example, of, of chronicling the working class experience in, in Fremantle. So we have, and a lot of um, men, well, a lot of people have written about white working class culture, but a lot less, I think, about the experience of uh, growing up on missions. I mean, all kind, all kind of experiences. Um, Nam Lee would be one of the first writers to start writing explicitly about the kind of more recent a refugee um, and immigrant experience. And But there are more people starting to write into that space. And as I said, the issue is, are they, are they being picked up? A lot of books are being written, they're not necessarily being picked up by publishers, let alone being published to, th to then be picked up or not by readers. Chloe, what issues for you remain invisible? What do you not get to read about? Well, I actually agree with you, Tim, that, um, you know, I don't think that a book 
you know, if it's not actually well written, then the politics aren't, um, you know, it's it's irrelevant. It's going to be irrelevant, even yeah. if the politics are are right on. I, I thought that speaking of authors making public announcements, I read Richard Flanagan's um, is Beauvoir. Uh, lecture and I thought that that was a fantastic speech and uh, he did a terrific job of bringing the invisible into what he was saying by using those um, small excerpts of the Nauruan. um, Those people imprisoned on Nauru, their complaints about the way they've been treated, just often two and three sentences, short stories he treated them as. Incredibly powerful. It was extraordinary, you know, 700 people in a hall in dead silence listening to him read that out. But I do think that there is there is a lot of hostility towards mm-hmm. writers and, and writing, uh, you know, within the political classes of Australia. Right. And, you know, I don't know that that's going to, you know, that that's not going to change policy, is it? So, Tim, what, what voices are we not hearing? Well, well I, I don't think we're hearing... I, did, I didn't want to. Whenever I have a public discussion or even a private discussion, I time how long it takes before we mention Donald Trump. Donald Trump's peculiar claim to fame is that he has never read a book. Yeah. Claims to have written a couple, although somebody else seemed to have done that on his behalf. Everything is everything for him. Knowledge, wisdom is through the medium of television. Now, my suspicion is he's not an aberration, but he actually captures a trend within a wider Western discourse that books are the the tools of the elite. Um, I don't think students. Uh, you think about the, the 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 demographic to whom he appeals. They're people that would be instinctively distrustful of liberal elites, and he's made it okay to disdain them. Um, your your TV is is your answer as long as I'm on it. And I, so I what the what, I suppose the wider point I'm making is that we've lost the medium of the book, which we're trying to recover through something like the Great Books Masterclass, where you actually hold the text, which we've been doing for thousands of years, very successfully, and you engage with it. Instead, now we have various different media, which incentivize speed of consumption. uh, And we don't read in the way we used to. And I think Trump is an an example of many things, but he may well be an example of that corruption of our culture. I I think, Tim, that you're absolutely right, that People seem to be shocked about the popularity of Donald Trump or were shocked by Brexit or are shocked by right-wing movements in Australia, and we shouldn't be shocked. I mean, it, it, it is, um, says something about people who don't know that um, how frustrated other groups of people are becoming in the country. That it, it, it doesn't reflect well on those of us who get shocked by these things. I think that you're right, Tim, that people are now consuming their... What, what might have been a sort of literary fix through through the television often. And um, I was curious about a study done by some ANU researchers, you probably know this well, uh, a couple of years ago where they actually asked Australian politicians yeah. their favourite books. And um, I know you've got a copy of 1984, which was one of Cory Bernardi's. You know, that's his favourite. Mm. Does, <laughs> but it, that all... doesn't invalidate 1984. Of course not, of course not. <laughs> Although you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of politicians seem to like To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, and 1984, mm-hmm. which does also make one wonder if they've read beyond their yes. high school, yeah, you know, the reading list. School. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, it's a, a nice moment to reflect on a quote from Jan Martel, who also spoke at the Writers' Festival: "A police chief, the head of a hospital, the head of a corporation, a prime minister, 
To me, they should read because I don't know how else you can know the human condition. Otherwise, you only know of your own tight little life, mm. he said. Mm. So a final question to each of you. What should policymakers be reading right now? Sophie. Um, I have two answers. One is the Edith Trilogy by Frank Morehouse, which is very enormous, but is actually about the making of policy, but in the most entrancing and engaging way, said over about 50 years. Um, and the second novel I would mention is The Golden Age by Joan London, which I think speaks to all things and, and yeah, it should be compulsory reading. <laughs> Chloe. Oh, I would, I would say... Um, Tim Flannery, uh, the, the Future Readers. And Tim? Well, I've, I've rather been put in a corner now because the book I'm going to suggest is 1984, <laughs> which I can recommend without having to channel any sort of inner Cory Bernardi or a Andrew Bolt. Uh, I, it's a book that I wish I had read in 1984 when I was 14. It's that I came to it um, towards the end of my undergraduate years. And it, it to me, it, it both framed my experience of politics and was actually the catalyst, I think, for my becoming a political scientist. And what it does fundamentally, and we're going to have hours talking about 1984, it speaks about the, the, both the, the, the limited potential of politics as well as its absolute capacity to shape humankind. Um, and I think it's both a terrifying book and a book that deserves to be reread. And I think it's hard to go past the most recent Stella winner, Charlotte Wood and her The Natural Way of Things, which used metaphor to discuss imprisonment and control in quite scary ways. It's been a great pleasure today asking can literature influence public policy with eminent novelist and non-fiction writer Chloe Hooper. Thank you. Novelist, memorialist, editor and occasional travel writer Sophie Cunningham. Thank you. And director of the Graduate School and Associate Professor in American Politics, Tim Lynch. Thank you. Thanks all. This has been Glyn Davis, and this has been the 12th episode of The Policy Shop. Thank you for listening. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.